good morning. We are at Exodus chapter 2, so if you have your Bibles, I'm going to encourage you to open them up. And I'm already going to take a sip of water because it feels like my voice is already going to go out on me here. Well, last week we heard uh, four key themes that were presented throughout the entire book of Exodus. The first theme is that God is working behind the scenes. We will see that God has a plan. We'll see that he executes the plan, that he works out. Excuse me. I've been drinking water all morning and it's not working yet. (laughs) Again, we'll see that God is working out the plans, that uh, he has a plan, he's working it out, he's getting through the details. We can place our hope in him because he is trustworthy. We'll see that his plan is in fact perfect, that he, as he has that plan that he reveals it to us, that he will give it to us and involve us in it just as we need it, when we need it. Number three is that we are challenged to then draw near to him and not just to the gifts that he receives, that he gives to us, that the blessings that he bestows upon us. Uh, we'll see that we are made and brought aware of those gifts and that Oftentimes, as Pastor Justin mentioned last week, we often place our hope in those very gifts that he has given us as opposed to him, the giver of those gifts. And number four, God will deliver us from bondage through a substitute. We will learn that we cannot find freedom just in and of ourselves, that we have completely missed the point of some of those gifts and those blessings that we've been given and that they're to point to the Savior as opposed to the gift in and of itself. And so this morning, we're going to look at a chapter, a story that Sunday school children have made pictures of. They've made crafts of for centuries of this iconic scene of this little baby in a little basket tucked away nicely in a little group of reeds in a nice little flowing gentle river, unaware of this danger of the world around him. Well, the neat part about this story is that this is not the first story, nor is it the last story of a surprising birth in Scripture. Genesis chapter 21 tells of Isaac, who was born to Sarah, who was 90 years of age and was barren. And the Lord spoke to Abraham, Sarah's husband, and that they would conceive and that they would bear a son. It would be a miracle that would lead towards Jacob being born, the father of the Israelite nation. A few chapters or a few books ahead in the Old Testament, the book of Judges, Judges 13, it tells of a man named Manoah and his wife who had no children as well. She too was barren. But an angel then appeared to this woman, not once but twice, telling her both times that she would bear a son who would eventually save the Israelite nation from the oppression of the Philistines. Soon Samson was born and lived to do all that was foretold. First Samuel tells of Hannah, and who also had no children, this time now with a husband named Elkanah. She, she goes to the temple to pray, to pray earnestly in front of the Lord, pleading with the Lord that she would be provided a child. And Eli, the priest there, comes after her, and he says, Scram, get out of here, you sound all drunk. And she pleads with Eli, telling him, I, I'm, I'm just praying earnestly for the Lord's provision of a child in my life. And Eli, in his pastoral sense, gets a sense that the Lord wants to grant her the answer to her petition. So she goes home and she uh, bears a son and she names him Samuel. And Samuel goes on to be one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. These three gentlemen, these three boys, they all grew up to serve the Lord with, with greatness. 
they, they led the nation of Israel to great places and they, they served the Lord with a love and with a passion. And now in Exodus chapter two, we find yet another surprising birth story. While the circumstances now in Exodus chapter two are just a little bit different, the, the, what is abundantly clear is that if this boy was to be born, the boy was going to be killed, either straight at birth or just a few days later, who knows when, in the Nile to be drowned. In all of these stories, we see in God's story of salvation is that he uses children as an instrument to deliver people from all kinds of bondage. And it'll be no surprise to us that these four instances are not the only four instances throughout Scripture. Pastor Justin told us last week that this week we we're going to be looking at a story that, that points to the birth of Christ. And even in a more surprising way, Jesus Christ was born that very first Christmas day so long ago to an unmarried virgin named Mary. And so we open up now Exodus chapter 2. Pharaoh has long forgotten about why the Israelites were even a part of their nation. Uh, he's forgotten that even the Israelites represented their own salvation as a nation of Egypt from that crazy drought that happened some 400 years ago. He was getting scared that their growing numbers would result in some revolution of sorts. And so he enslaves them, hoping to weaken their spirits, to, to quell their growth. But the more they were worked, the more they grew. And so he commanded that all the baby boys would be killed at birth. But that didn't work either. Remember that Hebrew woman that was stronger than the Egyptian woman that the, with that simple, hmm, they were able to give birth? Well, Pharaoh being angered by that very fact, he escalated his efforts from being a silent killer to just leading straight up genocide. In fact, Exodus chapter one ends, ends with a line with that, every baby boy is to be thrown into the Nile. So we know that the title of this particular section here, the birth of Moses, that this boy's life is already in jeopardy. So let's read Exodus chapter two. I invite you to keep your Bibles open. We're gonna go a little bit slowly through this, but we'll, we'll get there. Exodus chapter two, verse one. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son and she saw that he was a fine child and so she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. Now, one thing we gotta look at right away here is the, the word for basket that is used by the author here uh, is the same word that is used in Genesis chapter six. It's the word taba. It's the word that basically expresses ark or a basket. And in the same way that... Uh, the story of Noah draws out and that he was commanded to build an, a, a tabah. So now uh, Moses' mother is making a similar tabah uh, for her own son. And so right away as readers, we should already be clued in to how the story is gonna go, is that the Lord is working through some crazy, fantastic way the salvation of this particular child. The connection cannot be lost on us we see clearly that God is at work and that he's working to save his people. Halfway through verse three. And so she put the child in it and placed it amongst the reeds by the river bank. Now this, this little ark here wasn't shoved into the middle of the river to leading this little tyke to just find his way into the Mediterranean Sea to find his life, way through life on his own. This practice of placing babies in little arcs and little baskets, while it wasn't uncommon, 
sorry, it was uncommon. It was practiced. It was a thing that was done. We hear stories uh, passed down through the ages, through the ancient Near East, of, of, of people placing children in these little arks to leave them to the safety of the gods. Not our God, but the gods. And they did it for one of two reasons. The first was for if it was an unwanted child, they, would, they wouldn't know what to do with it. So they would build a little, little basket and just set it free. Second one was if the child needed some sort of protection in some time of crisis. So clearly, we get an understanding right away out of the gate here that this child was, was wanted. They, they wanted to protect this child. So they built a little ark, nestled it amongst the reeds for its own salvation. But we see here as well as the story plays out is that they, they trusted in Yahweh God to protect and to preserve their son. So this little basket, this little ark, was placed very carefully with love and compassion there at the river's edge amongst the reeds. Verse four. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done of him. Now there's a few levels of protection that this family's now putting into place to make sure that this little boy doesn't end up in the Mediterranean Sea. First, they've placed, placed the basket, the ark, by, by the reeds. And second, they placed his older sister on guard to see what would happen to make sure that uh, this little boy's safety was kept and that whatever future this little boy would have would be understood. Verse five. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river where her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket amongst the reeds and she sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. And she took pity on him and said, this little one is one of the Hebrews' children. Now we heard last week that these few opening chapters of Exodus tells us of five uh, women who played absolutely integral roles in this, this story. We saw the two midwives, the Shifran Pua, who were the, the midwives. We saw Moses' mother and his sister. And now we get to meet the Egyptian princess. Again, in a time frame where women were, were valued just a little bit less than the cows and the sheep in their backyards, this is an instrumental portion of God's story that they were placed into the story of salvation as we get to read it today. And so we've just met the Egyptian princess, Pharaoh's daughter. Now, Pharaoh's the guy who, who raised the, his game from oppression to straight-up genocide in a matter of a few verses. Could, now, could, could you imagine with me, now, we know the rest of the story. We know that Pharaoh takes in this boy into her home. Could you imagine now with me the story as it plays out in our own minds of Pharaoh's interaction with his daughter as she takes home this child? It's not like she took home a pet. It's not like she took home a cat that would have actually had some value in the Egyptian home. But she took home this Hebrew little boy. Imagine what that dinner table would have looked like that night as Pharaoh's reaming out his daughter for taking home this boy instead of a cat. The scene could not have gone over well, especially in a household where the father was saying this child must die. You see, that's how we, we, we imagine this story play out in our own mind's eye. But we're not God and we're not uh, in charge of this whole unfolding story. You see, the Egyptians there in this context, the Egyptians and their methodology and their way of living, they have this unrelenting desire to influence the nations around them for their own good, for their own glory. They wanted to change the world for their own good. And so they had this practice of welcoming princes from other nations to come into their own palace to educate them, to nurture them in their own Egyptian ways so that as these princes would go back into their homelands, they would go with Egyptian values. 
They would go with an Egyptian understanding of their gods. They would go with the whole Egyptian way of life back home. So part of me suspects that this princess, well, yes, she took pity on this poor little helpless child. She also wanted to please her father. So she took the child for the purposes of influencing the Hebrews from the very inside. But we know the rest of the story again, and we know that God had different plans. Verse 7. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, remember the sister that's standing guard, she approaches now Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh's daughter and what's happening. And she says, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said, yeah, go, of course, that's a great idea. So the Pharaoh went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him up out of the water. So three or four years later now, this child is now independent, moves into Pharaoh's palace, and is now now at this point finally named and given the name Moses. Do we honestly think now that this princess knows Hebrew well enough to appropriately name the child a Hebrew name, such as Moses. Now, well, yes, I, I, I don't mean to undermine the, the author's intent here, but we have to see that there's a bit of a dual purpose happening with this particular name. The Egyptian desire, once again, was to influence the world around, but why would she do it with a Hebrew name? Well, yes, this, this name Moses sounds like the Hebrew word mashah, which means he who draws out. It also in Egyptian is moz, which means to bear or to give birth to. It's, it's the suffix that they use in the naming practice of the Egyptian gods, which is, I find kind of fascinating. Think about the Egyptian god Ramses. I believe it's the god of the sun. The S-E-S portion of that name points to moz, which then makes the name mean the sun god who has given birth. Or another Egyptian god that's named Athretmos, the Mos there makes the name mean born of the god Thoth. So again, I, I mean not to undermine what, what the author here in Exodus is doing because they have a very keen eye towards what God is doing and how God is working and how this name even attaches itself within the Hebrew context. That makes perfect sense. But there's, again, that dual purpose here. So she names him Moses to tell her father that he is a gift of the gods to their family for the purposes of expanding the Egyptian lifestyle, the Egyptian nationality. But we understand that God had ulterior motives in all of this, that there was another way that he was working behind the scenes. We understand that Moses' salvation for himself was being drawn out of the water, that that too also points to how the Israelites soon, uh, in a, I don't know how long but time, but soon would be drawn through the water for their own salvation as they fleed the land of Egypt. So again, we see the point here that the story is all about the salvation of God's people and that God is at work amongst them enacting his plan, enacting his glory so that he himself would be praised at the end of the day. And so all of this we see, number one, that in God's plan for salvation, he includes, he uses people. In God's plan for salvation, God uses people. So this nation of Israel has grown 
substantially over these last 400 years that they've been in Egypt. There's anywhere between two and three million people now occupying part of this land. And this Egyptian story now has us zoom in on this particular small family of four. But it's not just this family of four that we're looking at. There's, there's a, a, a variety of other things that are happening amongst this family who's heading off to make bricks, working in the fields, and just doing all they can to survive and live in this life and also trying to grow their nation. But we need to recognize it's not just them on their own. They had this ability now to hide this newborn son for those three months. Think of the support that this family would have had to have to, to contribute to the, the hiding of that particular child. The excuses their community would have had to make as they would go off to the brick shop and she didn't show up for work because she was at home taking care of her son. Think of the extra meals that they would have had to take home so that she would have had the meals to take care of herself and her son. Think of also that, 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 just that community around that was just offering their support. Think of also the princess and the whole entourage that came along with her and just the amounts of people that were all part of this pretty small family of four's life. There's a lot of things happening in this story. And I guess as I was reading it this past week, as I've often wondered in our broken world, why can't God just snap his fingers and lift these people right out from where they are and drop them into the promised land, the place where he's gonna lead them to, into the land flowing, flowing of milk and honey? Why can't he just pick them up and put them over there, just like that? For us here and now, I guess as I was still thinking about those thoughts, I guess I'm thinking, well, God, why can't you just stop the war in Ukraine? Why can't you just stop all the senseless killing that we hear about so regularly in the news throughout the U.S. and even here in Abbotsford? You know, again, I was thinking, he's God. He's the guy who made the sun, the moon, and the stars. He put everything in his order, and he made you and I and everything else that we have in our lives, and he made it out of the snap of his fingers. Why can't he just uplift these people and put them over there, end their slavery, move them into the place where he's leading them to, and just go there? Well, in my understanding and my belief of who God is, is I believe he can. I believe he has the ability. He's proven it to us. But he doesn't. And that can be infuriating to us. That can be so frustrating to us as we just want God to act uh, right now. But you see, God chooses to unveil his plan of salvation through people, through the very people that he's made in his image, the very people that he's commissioned to share his love and his grace and his mercy with all the people around. Yes, he could do all those things, but he's, he's not gonna get our love in that, in that way. There's this fascinating story that I absolutely love. It's actually a couple pages behind in the book of Genesis. It tells the story, it's through the story of Joseph being uh, invited, well, invited, he was sold by his brothers, uh, to go into Egypt. And while, but, but before there, his, uh, he was working with his, uh, his brothers, sorry, were off uh, tending sheep in a far off distant land, a land called Shechem. And his father, Jacob, says, hey, Joseph, I'm gonna send some, some supplies to make sure that your brothers have everything that they need. So go take these supplies and go to your brothers at Shechem and make sure I say hello. So Joseph goes off on his way to go see his brothers there in the land of Shechem, but he, he's wandering around in those, those, uh, those fields there, and some other guy finds him. Genesis 37, verse 15. And a man found Joseph wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, well, what are you seeking? 
Oh, I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pastoring their flock? And the man said, they've gone away. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. You see, his, his brothers weren't there anymore. He had no clue. If, if the stranger hadn't showed up, this man would have just been circling these, this wilderness, these fields, these hills, and who knows where else for years on end unless he went back home to his father because he couldn't find his brothers. And in walks this nameless stranger, and he says, they went over there. They, I, I heard them talking. They're going, they're going that way. Go that way. And so the rest of the story plays out. Joseph finds them, and he goes there, and he meets his brothers, gives them all what they need to do. But I'm so, this, this story here just makes me so curious about our stories. Who the strangers are in our lives, the princesses in our lives that drew these people out. It's amazing to look back at God's provision as he's dropped people into our lives to draw us closer to himself. So I love in this, 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 this moment to think about this one for a bit. A couple stories on my part from, from my life. There's a couple of people in my life who've played pretty integral roles in drawing me out, and they probably have no clue who they are. One is a guy named Larry Clay. He was my high school gym teacher. Now, I was in his office one afternoon, uh, likely getting in trouble for something, and uh, in that interaction, Larry told me, Adam, you have to take your faith seriously. It was the first time someone outside of my mom and my dad who have told me I need to take my faith seriously. I was drawn in. There's another woman in the same time frame. Her name was Marlene. She was a Sunday school teacher at my parents' church when I was a teenager. One morning, I guess her helper didn't show up. And she invited me to teach Sunday school with her. And so I went off to teach Sunday school with her. And I had my first experience leading a conversation around scriptures. I didn't know if I fully even believed it yet but I got a first taste of what leadership felt like. There's another guy, his name is John. Uh, the, after church, again, these are all church-related. Uh, after church one morning, I was hanging out in the back of the auditorium while my parents talked for days on end, as we do. Sorry, kids. And uh, I was just hanging around the back of the auditorium, and they're at the, uh, in here I was kind of hanging out by the, the sound booth up there, and uh, this guy, John, looks over at me as this young kid looking on in. He's like, hey, Adam, are you curious about all of this? I'm like, yeah. He's like, cool, come learn it. And so I learned a few of the things, and I stepped on in, and I helped out in our church's uh, tech booth for quite some time following. I got excited about church and just what it looked like to run it. Final story here. Another guy, his name was Rick. Uh, I had just first learned to play bass guitar, learned is uh, a loose term at that point, and that I was uh, playing in a church, and I was terrible, but Rick, after the service, came running up to me because he was just delighted to see another young face up there, even though I sounded awful. It was terrible. And every week following, he, every time I was up there, he would come up and be like, Adam, that was awesome. And every time following, he encouraged me, and I kept on getting better, and he was just like, Adam, you're growing, you're learning. It was so great. But what is neat about every one of these stories? I've had a chance to go back to a few of them and say thank you. But I've promised you, they had no clue the impact that their words had in my life. They had absolutely no idea how their words of invitation and encouragement shaped my life as a teenager and still shape my life now 20 some odd years later. Their words were pure and they were genuine. They even had no idea what they were doing. They were a stranger in my life that pointed me off in the right direction. They said, they didn't really say it this way, but they said, you're here now, but you need to go here. 
They're over there. That's where you need to be. So I'm curious, in your life, who is your Larry? Who is your Marlene? Who is your Rick? Who is your John? Who is your princess? Who is your stranger that has been a part of your history, your last 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 90 years? Who has been your stranger that has pointed you from where you are, pointing you to where you need to go? I would even encourage you right now, if you have that name in your mind, just log it up there again. And even this week, coming two weeks, if you can, send them a message. Let them know, I'm just so grateful for your words and for your words of encouragement. And that's also to speak to us as a congregation too. Be encouraging. Use those words that God has given you to speak life. And that points to the next thing where I want to go. As much as God uses other people to draw you to himself, you just might be the princess. You might just be the stranger. You might just be the Marlene, the Rick, the John, or the other guy I mentioned, Larry. You might just be that to someone else in your life. To draw this out, I, I have an old friend, his name is Joe. And Noah, I've told some of you this story because I just it's one of my favorite stories from my past. Well, Joe was a good friend of mine. Uh, we were going to Bible college together. We were part of uh, a young adults group together in my past life. And uh, I remember so much of my interactions with Joe, so much. I remember driving with him because we carpooled together to school for so many years. We talked about life, we talked about love, we talked about music, we talked about literally everything from theology to, well, you name it, we talked about it. But there was one conversation that I cannot remember for the life of me. A year and a half after this very conversation happened, this, this conversation came back to me in a rather uh, uh, circular route. He understood an invitation from God's voice to enter into a world of ministry. And somehow he understood that invitation from God's voice through a conversation he had with this guy. So I went back to him that year and a half later. It's like, Joe, could you, could you tell me what I said? not only just out of my own, my own curiosity, but I want to know because I want to share with others. I would love to see others just enter into ministry in some sort of context. And what did I say, Joe? I still don't remember what he said. But he told me again. And he told me as clear as day in the very words I used. He even remembers the people that were around us, the shirt I was wearing, the day that it was on, the, the lighting that was in the room. He described the entire scene in perfect, complete clarity. You see, clearly, the Lord was drawing him to himself and using the environment around him to do so in the clearest of words that Joe needed to hear. So again, I'm curious. Who might you just be a princess to? Who might you just be a stranger to? And for me, and again, in my mind, I'm thinking, this, this puts so heavy on us our need to be keen to study God's word, to be aware of his invitation, to be in, in prayer with him, to know our own invitation that we're receiving so we can extend it to others. Because sometimes you just might say things that lead people to an articulate understanding of where they need to be without even knowing it yourself. We need to be fully prepared whether we realize it or not, in all the places we are, to be the one to share of his love, to share of his invitation. Peter, a New Testament writer, has, I was gonna read it from here. Uh, he has this uh, line in his first letter to his audience. And I love the way that Eugene Peterson paraphrased Peter's thoughts in the message. It says, through thick and thin, Keep your hearts at attention and at adoration before Christ, your master, 
Be ready to speak up and tell anyone who asks why you're living the way that you are. And always with the utmost courtesy. Keep a clear conscience before God so that when people throw mud at you, none of it will stick. Again, we need to realize once again that God can use us in the, in the most amazing ways, whether we are aware of it or whether we are not aware of it. It's an amazing thing to be used of God in those kinds of places. So always be ready. Be in study of scripture. Be in conversation with the Lord God Almighty through prayer so that at just the right time, you will be ready and called to do what it is that you are called to do. So God uses people in his story of salvation. Number two, in God's plan for salvation, God triumphs over evil. So last week, Pam and I, my wife and I, we watched this movie, uh, a 2014 movie called Unbroken. It's a fascinating movie. It tells of the real story of this guy named Louis Zamperini. And if you don't want any spoilers, I'm just going to encourage you at this point to plug your ears because I kind of tell the story. This guy, Louis Zamperini, he flew combat planes, planes in World War II. His plane went down after, uh, after a, a bit of a battle in south of the ocean, of, uh, south of Hawaii there, and he was stuck in this raft for, I won't tell you how many days, that's part of the story, for a long, long time. And in, in these rafts, there's a massive storm that, that flows, and he, he ends up praying to God, saying, God, if you save me out of this very moment, I will serve you. I will go on from here and love you and serve you and do all that I can for your kingdom. Well, the interesting part is that he is, in fact, saved, but he's still in the wartime. He's saved by the Japanese army. He's brought back to Japan. He's put into POW camps and enslaved and burdened and persecuted and destroyed as a little human. The story goes on to tell that he does eventually get home because the war came to an end. He was freed. And the closing scene of the movie is him hugging his mom, his dad, and his brother. It's very, very touching. It's an incredible movie. But the real cool part of the story happens as the credits begin to roll. A couple subtitles come up just to tell the post story, the follow-up. Well, Louis did, in fact, give his heart over to the Lord. He did dedicate his life to servitude. But the fascinating part about his story is that he goes back to Japan on his own volition, and he wants to forgive those who persecuted him. He made it his goal to face that very leader of that one prison camp who was just out there to end him. Unfortunately, he couldn't find that guy, but he found a whole bunch of other soldiers and other people that he was able to extend God's forgiveness to. You see, work was meant for evil. POW camps were meant for evil. But in this situation, God meant it for something else in Louis's life, in the lives of those whom he forgave. Louis's time in those POW camps was meant to be his end. But in fact, they only made him stronger. They made him more resilient. The Nile, going back to our story here, was supposed to be the end for Moses. But it ended up being his salvation. The book of Genesis tells again about Joseph, who was sold by his brothers into slavery. They had thought they'd gotten rid of this annoying little twerp that they could just, you know, get rid of their youngest little brother. But however, God's plans were different. God's plans are almost always different than our own, aren't they? As Joseph's story plays out, he ends up in, in Pharaoh's court and rose through the ranks and ended up being the one to save not only the 70 and his family, but also the entire Egyptian nation as well. And as he is revealing all of this to his brothers, at, Egypt, at uh, Genesis 50, verse 20, he says, as for you, you meant that sale of me for evil, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today, not just our family, but also our enemies, these Egyptians as well. 
I find it just so fascinating. And so for us here at Gateway in Abbotsford in the 21st century, what does this mean that God triumphs over evil? Over our last couple of years, we've had a pretty tough go at life, haven't we? We've experienced COVID, fires, heat domes, flooding, deaths, you name it. But beyond our few years that we've had here, uh, in our lives, we've faced cancers of all kinds, diseases of all kinds, broken relationships, painful moments in our past where things were caused to hurt us in ways that we don't even want to speak of. You name it. We have felt the ramifications, each one of us, of this broken and damaged world, haven't we? If I was to ask for a show of hands, I bet every hand would show if we were to say, have we been hurt by this world? I promise you, we all have been in some way, shape, or form. And I love, I love the words of Isaiah. These are incredible words. Isaiah 43. God's speaking to his people and he says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. Already we get an affirmative statement there. I have redeemed you. It's complete, it's perfect, it's done. I have redeemed you. I've called you by name and you are mine. He has called each and every one of you by name. He knows each one of your stories, each one of your painful moments. He knows everything about you. I have called you by name and you are mine. Despite all of those things that have happened to you, you are mine. He says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flames shall not consume you. You see, God understands that there's gonna be high waters in our lives. There's gonna be raging fires that seek to destroy us and God knows those things about us. He knows those things about his creation. But it goes on to say, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Not Moses, not Noah, not Jacob. I am the Holy One of Israel, the Lord your God, your Savior. So Isaiah tells the people of Israel that there will be dangers ahead. There will be real dangers that can, in fact, destroy their lives. But he tells them that those things will not be their end, that they will not be their final and complete and utter death. But the Holy One of Israel, God himself, will sustain them. He will protect them. He will draw them near to himself as he protects his people. Jesus picks up a similar theme in, in John 16. Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace, but in the world you will have tribulation. You will have those high waters. You will have those fires. You will experience COVID. You will experience death. You will have tribulation. But take heart, Jesus says. I have overcome the world, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And there again, we have a similar finality, we have a similar promise that this is already done. That work has already been completed. We just get to live into it. We just get to proceed our lives forward in that direction. You see, Jesus Christ has come and overcame all of the challenges that you and I, that we face today. He is the one who gives us strength to face each and every day. He is the one who was behind Louis Zamperini, being able to give him the ability to go to back to Japan to forgive his captors. 
to grant them the forgiveness that God has already offered them. So again, I want to go to a bit of introspective moment in our own lives here. I want you to think about any of those things in your life that has caused you hurt. Any of those things in your life that has caused you pain. Think about how those things in your life still maybe at this point limit you from being able to do different things in life now. And how those things limit you from being able to really go forward in life. You see, thinking about the story of Louis, he could have nurtured those grudges. He could have hung out with his buddies and said, what bad Japanese people those people were. And he could have kept them alive. He could have nurtured those grudges and enjoyed them and even allowed them to become part of his identity. I'm sure he could have done that with his family and with his friends and, and to continue to flourish in that hatred of this particular people group. But you see, Louis grew in his faith towards an understanding that Jesus Christ saved him. He began to see that the only way that he could go forward was to start a process of letting go of those grudges that were still resonating in his heart. You see, the evil that he had experienced, he began to see how Jesus had overcome them. Where it means for us right now is that the evils that you have experienced in your life, Jesus has overcome. The pains that you have experienced, Jesus has already redeemed. The hurts that you continually face each day as you wake up, they've already been defeated. So what past hurts do you still need to work through? What past experiences is the Lord today putting already on your heart, even now, that you need to begin the process of letting go? What grudges, what pains, what evils do you need to today to leave in the mighty hands of God? And I'd even ask you, who might you need to include in part of this letting go? Who is it that you can share this process with? Who, who is it that you can come on to, to lean on for support from? I, as one of your pastors, I, I, I put myself out there and say, if you are working through any of these things, give me a call. 604-309-5858. It's in, in, in all the websites and all the things. Give me a call. I want to help you through those things. What grudges, what pains and evils do you need to today to leave in the mighty hands of God? God will triumph over your evil. Number three. In God's plan for salvation, God works from start unto finish. In God's plan for salvation, he starts what he finishes. Sorry, he finishes what he starts. Finally, we see in the story, God began a great work to redeem his people to himself. And if we look through the next few chapters of how Exodus plays out, we'll see that there's going to be still a few rough days ahead for this people group. They have to face the plagues. They, they need to prepare in that quick and sudden way to leave Egypt. They, they face this thing called the sea. They're told to cross over to the other side, and they're like, what? They enter into this wilderness after they get across from the sea, and they, they we know the story, we, they end up there for 40 years. There's a few tumultuous years ahead for them. And so we're still in this early days of our Exodus series. We're just beginning to see that God starts some pretty crazy things to bring about salvation for his people. You see, Moses was placed in that river that was supposed to kill him. He was saved by the princess who had orders to flip over his ark when she found him, yet she lifted him out. His own mother was paid to love and to nurture and to provide for him. He was moved into the very home 
that was trying to kill him. You see, only God could have ordained himself through these moments to protect the life of this little boy. You can read through the rest of the story of the rest of the Pentateuch through Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy about how the Lord works together towards his people to full, pull them from Egypt, to uh, sustain them through the, uh, the wilderness, to usher them towards that promised land. But the truth that we need to recognize in this moment today is that the truth for us is that what the Lord starts, the Lord finishes. The Apostle Paul knows this full well. We ended last week's service with Paul's words to the, I still can't say the name, Thessalonians. At chapter five, verse 23, Paul writes to them. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. He will surely do it. He will follow through. He will complete what he started. You see, Paul's understanding comes from his own personal experiences that tells us that our God is a good and gracious God who is faithful to all of his children, even when his children in turn are less than faithful to him. But hear this, my friends. As he begins to draw you in, he will not stop until he has you fully and completely. And once he has you, he will never ever, ever let you go. So at the start of our message, we started by looking at uh, four of these little surprising birth stories throughout the Old Testament. These four babies all grew up to be men who played pretty integral roles in, in how the salvation of the Israelites would come about. But these four men were only foreshadows of the one who could completely and wholly save the entire nation of Israel and even us as a distant Gentile people from their bondage. You see, Isaac, the first guy we talked about, he lied about his wife, saying that she was his sister. Moses struck the rock at Meribah, taking credit upon himself for the water that was provided by the Lord. Samson married a Philistine woman, a woman, a daughter of the nation who was oppressing them. He was commanded to stay away from them. Samuel placed his sinful sons in leadership of the nation of Israel. You see, these four men, they were all fallen and broken people, just like the people they led, just like you and I, the readers of this story today. While these men were able to do some great works, they could not fully and completely be the salvation for those nations, neither for any other nation. You see, Moses was a savior. He was not the savior. So we're talking about the salvation of the Israelites in this specific story, but more so we're looking at the story and how it points to the much broader story about how God's salvation plan for all humanity that, again, through that surprising birth of his son, Jesus Christ, that, that Christmas day so long ago that we all now have access to God's grace. And in his salvation story, God wants to use you in someone else's journey. Will you let him? In God's salvation story, God wants to overcome the evils in your life. He wants to triumph over all of those painful things of your past. Will you today talk about that with him? Will you engage in conversation with someone else about how the Lord desires to do those things in your life? Finally, in God's salvation plan for, for us in this story is that God will not leave you alone to fend for yourself. Will you recognize today God's hand of provision in your life? 
Will you recognize God's care for you and your life and the people that he has surrounded you by? So I pray that today you would answer God's invitation to find your salvation in him and in him alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for scripture. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the word that you have preserved for us for so many thousands of years. Even this little story, Lord, of this little baby boy who, who we, we've looked at, Lord, the story so many times. Thank you, Lord, for this morning to draw some, some other thoughts about it through it. Thank you, Lord, for this invitation, Lord, to once again seek you to help us triumph over the very things that are difficult in our lives. Thank you, Lord, for the recognition that people that you have placed in our lives are doing things for you and for your kingdom. Thank you, Lord, that you choose to use us within the, this story. So, Heavenly Father, help us in our hearts today and this week to come to be obedient to your voice, God. Help us, Lord, by your spirit, Lord, to listen to you articulately and clearly. So, Lord, in season and out of season, with awareness and without awareness, Lord, that we can do amazing things for your kingdom. So, Heavenly Father, Lord, we commit to you as a community here at Gateway Church, Lord, to, to, to you, Lord, to use us in ways that grows your kingdom here in Abbotsford and beyond. So, Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your message, and we thank you for this time, God, that we can gather together and learn it and study it. These things we pray in your name.